Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the February 21st, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine Highlights Podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to giving you a quick summary of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, also known as ACIP, has released its 2023 recommended adult immunization schedule, and the schedule is published in annals. The adult immunization schedule is published annually to consolidate and summarize updates to ACIP recommendations on vaccination of adults and to assist healthcare providers in implementing current recommendations. The authors note that physicians should pay careful attention to the details found in the vaccine notes section as they clarify who needs what vaccine, when, and at what dose. Important updates to vaccination recommendations this year relate to COVID-19, pneumococcus, and poliovirus. I will summarize these here and details are available in the full article at annals.org. For the first time in history, the COVID-19 vaccine is featured in the adult immunization schedule. Special links in the schedule aim to aid decision-making around COVID-19 boosters. It's important to note that for COVID-19, mRNA and protein-based vaccines are included, but viral vector vaccines are not. While the initial vaccine series and boosters are recommended, this does not mean that they are federally mandated. COVID-19 vaccine mandates are decided by individual jurisdictions. The new schedule includes new options for pneumococcal vaccination, which incorporate the higher valent PCV20 vaccine. The schedule also has a link to a new pneumococcal vaccination app to aid in making pneumococcal vaccination recommendations for specific patients. In another historical change, the schedule includes current polio vaccine recommendations for adults. Adults who have completed a three-dose polio vaccination series but are at increased risk for infection may receive one lifetime booster. Those who are at increased risk of exposure to polio virus without documentation of a completed polio vaccination series should talk to their physician about how many doses they should receive to complete a series. The vaccination schedule is presented in four sections, making it simple for vaccine administrators to use. The schedule can be used to determine recommended vaccines by age, to assess the need for additional recommended vaccines by medical condition or another indication, to review vaccine types, frequencies, intervals, and considerations for special situations, and to review contraindications and precautions to specific vaccines. The 2023 schedule is approved by the director of the CDC and by the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American College of Nurse Midwives, the American Academy of Physician Associates, and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology America. For the first time this year, the American Pharmacists Association also approved the schedule. According to the committee, the pandemic helped to solidify pharmacists as important partners in vaccine administration. Next is a brief research report that surprisingly found that adults with type 1 diabetes had overweight or obesity at the same rate as adults without diabetes, but only half of these patients received lifestyle recommendations from providers or engaged in lifestyle modification for weight management. Survival has significantly improved for patients with type 1 diabetes over the past two decades, shifting the health profile of this population. 
Researchers from Johns Hopkins conducted an analysis of the 2016 to 2021 National Health Interview Survey data from 128,571 non-pregnant adults and found that 86% of adults with type 2 diabetes had overweight or obesity, compared with 64% of adults without diabetes and 62% of adults with type 1 diabetes. So the prevalence of obesity was similarly high in persons with type 1 diabetes as in persons without diabetes. Worrisome is that the authors also found that adults with overweight or obesity and type 1 diabetes reported receiving lifestyle recommendations more frequently than those without diabetes, but far less frequently than those with type 2 diabetes. They also found that persons with type 1 diabetes were the least likely of the three groups to report increased physical activity or reduced caloric intake to manage overweight or obesity. According to the authors, the development of more comprehensive clinical guidelines with an emphasis on individualized patient education may improve weight management in patients with type 1 diabetes. Chronic pain is common and affects quality of life. Opioid medications have been used for the treatment of pain, but can have serious harms from overdose and substance use disorder. Thus, physicians need to be careful about reducing the risk and exposure to prescription opioids while still caring for their patients with chronic pain. In May 2022, leadership within the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the U.S. Department of Defense approved a joint clinical practice guideline for the use of opioids when managing patients with chronic pain. The updated guidelines include recommendations about the use of buprenorphine instead of full agonist opioids during chronic pain management. A summary of key recommendations and a related evidence review are now available on annals.org. Sepsis is a potentially life-threatening systemic dysregulatory response to infection, and septic shock occurs when sepsis leads to systemic vasodilation and subsequent tissue hypoperfusion. In 2021, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign published updated guidelines on the management of sepsis and septic shock. Although these guidelines provide a useful review of key recommendations and evidence, some issues remain incompletely resolved. In a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines feature, two critical care specialists discuss and debate conditional guideline recommendations related to the management of sepsis and septic shock. Go to annals.org to watch a video of the Grand Round discussants, Dr. Catherine Berg and Tyson Bell, debating several weak recommendations from the 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines with regard to the case of Miss S., a 70-year-old woman with septic shock. In their assessments, Dr. Berg finds a lactate level to be a quick, inexpensive, and useful indirect measure to assess illness severity and guide resuscitation. While Dr. Bell prefers to rely on dynamic assessments of intravascular volume status to guide fluid resuscitation, Dr. Berg favors balanced crystalloids for resuscitation, especially for patients with acute kidney injury, such as Ms. S. Dr. Bell believes the debate over fluid choice is less important than otherwise perceived because of the general trend towards less fluid resuscitation in critical illness and because of the inconsistent results in trials comparing balanced crystalloids to normal saline. Dr. Berg does not routinely employ corticosteroids in the first 24 hours in patients in whom shock is stable or improving, but when necessary, prefers a regimen of hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone, given the strongest data associated with this combination. Dr. Bell finds corticosteroids to be beneficial due to the improvement in important outcomes like time receiving vasopressors, duration of mechanical ventilation, and ICU length of stay. 
In addition to the video, you'll find a written article summarizing the discussion and an opportunity to earn CME and MOC credits by completing a short quiz. In August 2022, the Biden administration announced the Student Debt Relief Plan, offering $10,000 to $20,000 in forgiveness of some government-sponsored educational debt. The plan generated considerable controversy. The Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which has existed since 2007, can provide physicians with more than 10 times the amount of loan forgiveness as a student debt relief plan in exchange for employment in public or nonprofit settings, but so far has generated far less controversy. The difference in political pushback may be explained because the student debt relief plan considers only how debt is acquired, but the public service loan forgiveness program in requiring 10 years of public service also considers how the education is ultimately purposed. In a new ideas and opinions commentary, the authors argue that how even the well-meaning public service loan forgiveness program uses too blunt a definition of public service, creating a program that remains misaligned with many widely held goals about physician workforce and the high debt burdens faced by physicians. Next is another commentary authored by a medical student who is an indigenous person that reflects on how the Supreme Court's decision on abortion should be a devastating call to action for the medical profession. She also describes how even before Dobbs opened the floodgates of abortion restrictions, the reality for many, in particular indigenous people, has been one of lack of access to comprehensive reproductive health care. There has been concern about rebound of COVID infection, meaning recurrence of symptoms and test positivity after both had resolved. Norma Trevelier ritonavir, commonly known by the trade name Paxlovid, is a recommended treatment for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19 and risk factors for severe disease. Widespread use of Paxlovid has been accompanied by reports of worsening symptoms and virologic rebound after treatment completion. Virologic rebound has also been reported in persons who did not receive therapy, but studies that define the frequencies of symptoms and viral rebound during the natural course of COVID-19 that has not been treated are lacking. Researchers from Brigham Women's Hospital conducted an analysis of 563 participants receiving placebo in the active 2 a 5401 platform trial. The authors found that a combination of symptom and high-level viral rebound occurred in only 3% of participants. Symptom rebound alone occurred in 26% of participants 11 days after initial symptom onset, and viral rebound alone occurred in 31% of participants. High-level viral rebound was observed in 13% of participants. The researchers note that both symptom and viral rebound were short, lasting only one day in most participants. According to the authors, these results highlight the importance of accounting for underlying rates of symptom relapse in the absence of antiviral therapy when evaluating the consequences of treatment. The next two articles will be of particular interest to gastroenterologists. More than 16 million colonoscopies are performed annually in the U.S. alone, and polypectomy during colonoscopy plays a pivotal role in preventing colorectal cancer. Hot snare polypectomy has been conventionally used to remove polyps, but associated with a higher risk of delayed bleeding, post-polypectomy syndrome, or perforation. Previous research on cold snare polypectomy demonstrated that cold snare polypectomy was as effective as hot snare, but more efficient in removing small polyps, but its effect on reducing delayed bleeding has been shown only in high-risk patients. 
Researchers from Taiwan conducted a randomized control trial of 4,270 participants who were undergoing polypectomy in six centers in Taiwan. They report that only 8 out of 2,137 persons, or 0.4%, experienced delayed bleeding after cold snare polypectomy. In comparison, 31 out of 2,133 persons, or 1.5%, experienced delayed bleeding after hot snare polypectomy. They also report that only 0.2% of the cold snare polypectomy group had emergency service visits compared with 0.6% of the hot snare polypectomy group. The authors note that cold snare polypectomy was also more efficient, with the study results showing that the time required for polypectomy is reduced by 26.9%. According to the authors, the findings support the superior safety of cold snare polypectomy over hot snare polypectomy in managing colorectal polyps size 10 millimeters or smaller in the general population. The second article concerning colonoscopy is a cohort study from the Italian Colorectal Cancer Screening Program, including more than 49,000 colonoscopies that found a significant inverse association between endoscopist proficiency as measured by adenoma detection rate and post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. These findings suggest that targeting only poor performing endoscopists with measures to increase adenoma detection rate may significantly reduce post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. Colorectal cancer population screening programs based on fecal testing represent the standard of care in many Western countries. The ultimate effectiveness of these screening procedures relies on the accurate detection and removal of precancerous lesions and early invasive cancer in colonoscopies for persons with positive fit test results. However, it is known that there are high miss rates and high rates of performance variability among endoscopists. Researchers from Italy conducted a population-based cohort study of 49,626 colonoscopies done by 113 endoscopists between 2012 and 2017 after a positive fit result. They report that 277 cases of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer were diagnosed with a mean adenoma detection rate of 48.3%. They noted a 2.35-fold cancer risk increase in the lowest-performing endoscopist group compared to the highest-performing group. According to the authors, endoscopist competence is key to screening effectiveness. These results strongly suggest tailoring targeting of low-performing endoscopists with interventions aimed at helping them increase their adenoma detection rate and consequently help their patients by reducing their post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer rates. This month's In the Clinic Review is about Chagas disease. Caused by infection with the parasite Trypanosoma cruzi, Chagas disease is a neglected tropical disease in the United States. An estimated 240,000 to 350,000 individuals in the U.S. are infected, primarily immigrants from Mexico, Central America, and South America, where the disease is endemic. Transmitted by the triotamine bug, the parasite can also be passed vertically from mother to child via blood transfusion and organ transplantation. Approximately 30% of infected individuals develop end-organ complications, including cardiomyopathy, arrhythmias, thromboembolic disease, and gastrointestinal complications. Primary care providers should consider testing at-risk individuals using serology. Specialists in infectious disease, cardiology, and gastroenterology may be helpful in addressing management. Clinicians caring for persons from endemic areas should screen their patients for Chagas disease. Early diagnosis and treatment can help prevent complications.
Go to annals.org to refresh your knowledge, and you can earn CME and MOC credit by taking the short quiz that accompanies the article. Other new material that you'll find if you go to annals.org includes two new on being a doctor essays, several new ad libitum poems, the latest issue of ACP Journal Club, and a new Annals on Call podcast on the cost effectiveness, actually the lack of cost effectiveness, of the SGLT2 inhibitors as first-line therapy for type 2 diabetes. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and please return on March 7th for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.